Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Cricket. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for tonight's very special episode of TCCP is none other than Glamorgan County Cricket Club archivist and curator of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Crickets, Dr Andrew Hignall. So Andrew, first things first, thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast tonight. It's an absolute pleasure, pleasure to welcome nice you on for a chat you. about all things county cricket. I, I have to ask, mate, how has your day been so far? Uh, it's been busy. I've been back in the museum. We've had loads of, we have lots of schools coming in. Um, my role is also within the community department at Glamorgan. And we've got wall-to-wall schools coming in as of next week when they're back. And I've been sorting out all sorts of things, plus our T20 matches in June when we've got over, well, we've actually got nearly 4,000 kids coming to three of our T20 matches, which is absolutely fantastic. That really is wonderful. That's a great scheme being set up by the Welsh Outfit, so that'll be fantastic to see over the course of the summer. Fingers crossed that those will become well, it would the next be Morgan cricketers. Absolutely, and it would be great for me to come back and to talk to you in you know in future months. Um, it's all free tickets, and in a stadium of uh, sixteen thousand, uh, having uh, space to allocate to uh enthusiastic young people we did it last year and we had about uh two and a half thousand and we're hoping to uh per game i'm hoping to double it this year or this coming year and uh still have space for the paying punters but i do know from talking with the uh glamorgan players that they felt really up for it when they had all the shrill voices and everything else. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's a good time. It most certainly is. And again, that really is a fantastic scheme being set up by the club. And I can see why the players enjoy that. Obviously, more crowds, more noise, more atmosphere. It's what you want, isn't it, as a cricketer? Yeah, and in a stadium with 16,000 people, uh, or that can host 16,000, Last year, I know we had a wonderful game against Middlesex where Sam Northeast and David Lloyd added 150 in the blink of an eyelid uh, for the first wicket. Every other ball was going for four or six. The kids were waving their four and six cards. Absolutely fantastic. And most of those schools have actually rebooked for this year. I've had to tell them, though, (laughs) that we can't guarantee that Glamorgan are going to be, uh, um, well, I'll have a word with David and Sam and the others, but uh, we can't uh, necessarily uh, say that it's going to be quite like that. But what a way for a young person to have their first taste of cricket. I know from my own experience in the early 1970s, going to the old Sophia Gardens ground and uh, just getting that cricket fix as a youngster, how important that is, and look where it's got me. (laughs) Exactly. Here we are now talking about all things county cricket. It's a fantastic game, though. It really is. Obviously, I'm incredibly biased as the host of the County Cricket Podcast and 
having supported Warwickshire now for 14 years. Obviously, I'm going to say this, but cricket really is the greatest sport on the planet. So any initiative, any programme to get young people involved and engaged in the game, definitely something to applaud and something which should be replicated across the counties without a shadow of a doubt. But Andrew, before we get into the chat, maybe, about your your work at Glamorgan, which we'll probably discuss towards the end of tonight's podcast, just for the newer listeners out there tonight who may not be aware of how the County Cricket Podcast actually works. Tonight we have got a very special discussion. This is the fourth episode of our County Heritage Series. So we started with the the Derbyshire team of 1936. Then our second episode was about the 1911 side from my county of Warwickshire. The third one was about the victorious Nottinghamshire side of 1929. And for episode four, I wanted to discuss one of the most interesting teams that I've seen probably in the history of county cricket. And that is the 1948 Glamorgan side, which lifted the county championship. And who better to get on for this discussion than yourself, Andrew, someone who's written so much about this side and someone who's got such a breadth of knowledge about this team. This is why you're on tonight's podcast. I want to learn as much as I can about this fabled side of 1948. But before we get into the season itself, We talk about the key moments, we talk about the key protagonists, and we talk about the legacy of that season. Before we get into that, if we look at the seasons leading up to 1948, maybe even going back to the inaugural season of Glamorgan in the County Championship back in 1921, was there anything at all to suggest that Glamorgan County Cricket Club, a side which had only made their first-class debut 27 years prior, could become the champions of England and Wales? In a word, no. (laughs) Um, In the 1920s, there was a lot of uh, Celtic fervour. We must uh, remember that in that uh, era, just after the First World War, there were a lot of uh, people wanting to um, pay tribute to those people who had fallen during the First World War and also tried to make life better. But during the 1920s, uh, 1921 in particular, uh, Glamorgan won their first game uh, at Cardiff Arms Park against Sussex. But Glamorgan was still run in the early parts of the 1920s, very much as they had been as a minor county, with lots of quite modest amateurs, Uh, professionals who were probably past their best but they did have some absolute gems and there were people calling for Glamorgan to return to second class status but the gems that Glamorgan had who kept them afloat if I just talk about those briefly uh, Norman Riches Glamorgan's captain in 1921 who was a dentist by profession. He'd had a wonderful career uh, pre-war. The first Glamorgan, uh, sorry, the first batter ever in minor county cricket to score over a thousand runs in a season. Missed out on tours uh, before the First World War. He was asked by the Glamorgan committee to be the captain for 1921. And he led by example. And he was an absolutely magnificent player. 
also in that team in 1921 uh, was some, and in the 1920s, the early 1920s, there were some interesting characters. At the time, Glamorgan didn't have the money to actually employ experienced and good professionals. So it tended to be people who were past their best. But amongst the amateur ranks, Johnny Clay, who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, who then was a tearaway fast bowler. He'd been at Winchester College. Uh, he, he'd made his debut for Monmouthshire in 1920. He made his debut in the night in 1921 for Glamorgan as a fast bowler. Uh, he had a few injuries, but his spirit, his keenness, his desire for the Welsh county to do well shone above whatever he achieved on the field. But let's set against that in the 1920s. Um, some of the other characters who Glamorgan had, um, first and foremost, there was a guy called Freddie Mathias, great batter, great record with Cardiff Cricket Club. Um, he'd actually, as a 19-year-old, he'd been decorated in the First World War. He'd won the MC for being in dogfights uh, with the Red Baron. Uh, in He'd been a member of the Royal Flying Corps, uh, flying over France and Belgium, and Freddie had been there uh, as a relatively innocent young man, uh, involved, as I say, in those um, spats in the air. Together with his co-pilot, they'd taken photos of German uh, positions in Belgium and in France. Those were sent back to HQ, and Freddie won the MC. So I'm not sure how many counties in the early 1920s could boast someone like that. As the decade moved on, Glamorgan were lucky that they had secured the services of Jack Mercer. Now, Jack uh, had been around with Sussex before the First World War. In the actual war, he'd served with the Royal Sussex Regiment. He'd actually uh, um, sustained shell shock. He came back and the doctors said to him, um, plenty of exercise in sunny weather. So when Jack was recuperating 1919-1920, uh, he played a few games for Sussex, but then on the back of what Glamorgan had done, ironically, against Sussex in 1921, in Glamorgan's first ever county championship match, the vibes that went back to Sussex was that Glamorgan is the place to be. So Jack actually spoke to various people within Glamorgan. He moved uh, to South Wales, and Jack Mercer, in the interwar era, became not only the strike bowler, but also the stock bowler. Uh, bowling right arm uh, cutters and swing bowling, and he uh, he was the first Glamorgan player to, to take over a 1,000 wickets. If I tell you as well, 
he was a member of the magic circle so off the field he would have probably shown you a few tricks sleights of hand or what have you Clamorgan also secured uh, almost by default the services of a wonderful left-arm uh, spinner uh, Frank Ryan uh, he'd left Hampshire and a bit of a cloud he'd actually walked as a um well he'd walked from somewhere north of southampton through storms to bristol he'd carried on walking almost destitute to cardiff and luckily the people in south wales knew who he was and frank ryan was hired and he was um, an absolute gem a little bit of a hothead a little bit of a character found asleep under the covers when he'd forgotten where the Glamorgan team were uh, playing. I said a little bit of a hothead. That was more when he was with Hampshire under the captaincy of Lord Tennyson. Uh, luckily, the Glamorgan leaders knew how to handle him, and he was a far more temperate uh, player uh, in the 1920s uh, than he had been with Hampshire. I have to say, though, that um, it wasn't all an upward incline because Cyril Walters, a young player who uh, was an outstanding batter with Neath, it looked like he was going to be the, the uh, Glamorgan's great batter during the late 1920s. He actually retired and left and went to join Worcestershire. So it wasn't a completely upward incline for Glamorgan in the 1920s, but the person who turned the club around during the 1930s, a man who actually had made his debut in 1924, when only an 18-year-old schoolboy, still at Downside School, was Morris Turnbull. And Morris Turnbull went on, after leaving Downside School, he went on to Cambridge University. He ended up with a, an outstanding career there. And he, he was Glamorgan's first ever test cricketer in uh, January 1930, MCC's uh, overseas winter tour to Australia New Zealand. Morris Turnbull made his England debut, as I say, against New Zealand. And Morris turned things around. A team that had been um, relying on uh, possibly um, over-the-hill amateurs, a team that had been relying on professionals who were quite happy just to see their pension by playing at Glamorgan. Morris changed everything. He said he wanted a stronger Welsh identity, and that's something in 1948 that was really, really strong. But Morris made those changes in the early 1930s. Several players who'd been on the fringe were given extended run, like Emrys Davis, and at the 
also uh, to uh, Morris's Morris's great friend was Johnny Clay. Both of their fathers actually had um, interests in the shipping world in Cardiff Bay. And so together, they used their business interests to gather financial support, but also, at the same time, um, by contacting local clubs and schools, they were aware of the emerging talent. So in the 1930s, Glamorgan had a lot of promising Welsh-born players. In the 1920s, it had been um, what um, Johnny Clay had described as the ragbag years. But in the 1930s, a lot of young Welsh players started to emerge, several of whom we'll talk about a little bit later, because they featured in 1948 in the championship winning team. So basically, Morris Turnbull was the architect of that championship win. Well, Andrew, I'm really glad that you've mentioned him because Morris was someone who, in my research for this podcast, came up time and time and time again. I know that you've done a lot of writing about him and the legacy and the impact that he had on Glamorgan's formative years in county cricket. I do just have to ask, before we get into that 1948 campaign, just how big of an influence did he have on laying the foundation, the the cornerstones of this successful side, given the fact that he changed that identity and almost ignited that Welsh culture inside that Glamorgan dressing room? Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. Um, I don't think that what happened after the war would have happened without what Morris achieved. The club had moved up 1937. They were in the top half of the table. 1937, they beat uh, New Zealand, both um, at Cardiff Arms Park and at Swansea. And there were... Glamorgan players who are now starting to stake a claim for an England place. Now, I mentioned Morris playing in 1930, but 1935, Johnny Clay got the call-up. 1937, Austin Matthews, who had previously played for Northamptonshire, a really good fast-medium seam bowler. Uh, He had fallen out slightly with the North Hans uh, authorities, came back to South Wales, and it was remarkable because within three weeks, he, of making his Glamorgan debut in 1937, Austin Matthews was actually in the England team. Now, 1939, Emrys Davis, the stalwart opening Glamorgan batter, was also in the England squad to go off to India. But, of course, events on the world stage meant that that tour never uh, took place. So I think we have to say that during the the 1930s, especially the second half of the 1930s, was a really, really important time because now not only were Glamorgan players doing well in the county championship, they were actually coming to the attention of the England selectors. And it must have been very helpful 
that in 1938 and again in 1939 that Morris Turnbull was actually asked by the MCC to be an England selector. Absolutely. And again, just the the sheer impact of his role in those early years, you can't really describe it, can you? In terms of, of almost getting Glamorgan a, a platform in county cricket, being a selector, being the, the first player from the county well, to, we to must in England. Absolutely. And we mustn't forget that he was also a, a Welsh rugby international. He'd featured in the first ever Welsh rugby team to beat England at Twickenham in the uh, winter of the 32-33 season. He'd won honours playing uh, hockey and squash for Wales. And also at another level, he was a leading figure within the Roman Catholic community within South Wales. And in fact, there was a game in the 1930s at Cardiff where uh, the Pope was actually um, appearing on a Sunday at Phoenix Park in Dublin. So Morris, even though he was playing on the Saturday and most importantly on the Monday, don't forget in those days there was no Sunday cricket, but after play at Cardiff on the, on the Saturday night, Morris actually led a delegation, a trainload of people from the Catholic community in South Wales. They went by train from Cardiff to Pembroke Dock. They went over by ferry. They went to Phoenix Park to hear uh, the Pope preach on the Sunday. They came back and Morris was there at the crease, I think the game was against Hampshire, and Morris was there on the Monday morning, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as if nothing had happened. And I think you have to, when you weigh up the contribution of Morris Turnbull, you have to actually uh, bear in mind all of these other aspects of his absolutely outstanding career. And sadly, uh, in... 1944, he went over D-Day plus 12, I think it was, and he was by then a major in the Welsh Guards, and he led a series of uh, platoons. Their job going through Normandy was to clear the French countryside of German resistance. They did so. They got to the outskirts in early August of a town called Montchamp, which the Germans had held, but then had been uh, cleared from. And he went in, but then there was a German counterattack. And on the morning of, well, on August the 4th, he led a counterattack by the Welsh Guards. He was armed with um, a grenade together with others crawling along in front of a hedge there was a tank don't forget in normandy there were sunken sunken roads so the hedge would have been at the height of the tank and morris tried to lob this grenade into the lead tank to stop it but unfortunately the gun turret of the leading tank turned and shot him through the head 
and um, well, that was the end of Morris's life, and you only have to wonder at what else he might have achieved during his illustrious career. I know there are people who said he could have been MCC secretary, he could have ended up uh, with the um, in some very, very high positions, but um, that wasn't to be. But for Glamorgan, his legacy was actually having a team with a strong Welsh identity, something we'll talk about a little bit later, which was so important in 1948, but also, also nurturing local talent. And several of those players who flourished as youngsters in the 1930s under Morris flourished then in the 1940s in championship winning year. So Morris was the architect of the victory, but it was Wilf Wooler who ultimately saw Glamorgan to victory in the championship winning year of 1948. Absolutely, Andrew. And I did just want to give all of that background and that context. And I think you've set the, the scene quite magnificently there, actually, with all of that context and backstory behind Glamorgan's formative years and the role and impacts of Morris Turnbull, because I thought it was, in, it was, it was necessary to set that context. I think that we had to touch upon the, the life, the impact and the legacy of Morris Turnbull in this podcast, because although he wasn't alive for that season, as you said, he was the architect. He laid the foundation, and ultimately, those players that he helped to, to nurture and develop in the 1930s were the guys who went on to win in the season of 1948. And if we go into the 1940s now, post the Second World War, and we go to 1947, for example, where Glamorgan finished joint ninth in the championship, was there anything to suggest that at this point in history, heading into the next season, the Glamorgan could become the champions, per se? No. In fact, if you go back to 1946, Glamorgan was struggling to get a team together for those early games. People still on national service, uh, people overseas. I suppose, really, though, the thing was that in 1947, Wilf Wooler had been appointed as Glamorgan captain. Now, in 1946, Johnny Clay, who was by then a veteran of county cricket, Johnny had agreed, uh, and Johnny had been great friends with Morris Turnbull, Johnny Clay had been, had agreed to be Glamorgan's captain in 1946, to hold the fort and to try and groom a new captain, someone who would take the club forward. Obviously, under Morris, as we said in the 1930s, the club had made great headway. But it was now um, with... Um, to say they had financial reserves uh, would be a complete misnomer. Don't forget, at the time, Glamorgan did not own any ground. They were renting premises at Cardiff Arms Park. They were renting premises at Swansea. 
They were paying money at Pontypridd, at Llanelli, and various other places. It was very much a hand-to-mouth existence. But Wilf Wooler came along in 1947. Now, let's not forget that Wilf Wooler in the 1930s had been the biggest name in Welsh sport. He'd grown up in North Wales, had played minor county cricket for Denbyshire. He'd played for Lancashire second eleven. We won't hold that against him, though. But uh, Wilf Wooler had been a star of the Welsh rugby team that had beaten the New Zealand All Blacks in 1935. Wilf Wooler was the big, big name, and he was around in the late 1930s, and Wilf had been to Cambridge University, a good uh, all-round cricketer, a decent bowler, decent swing bowler, um, an okay batter, very much an in-your-face player. Uh, We'll talk about his captaincy, I'm sure, in a few minutes. But Wilf had had made an impact in the 1930s. And Johnny Clay, when he was captain in 1946, Johnny Clay had identified Wilf as the person to take Glamorgan forward. Wilf had worked in the Colic sporting trade in Cardiff before the war. He didn't really have many other opportunities after the war. As we'll talk about, I'm sure in a minute, he had some very difficult experiences during the war. But it was Wilf who Johnny Clay in 1946 recommended to the Glamorgan committee as the new captain. They agreed. And so Wilf took the team forward and it was as a result of his captaincy, his methods, not everyone would have agreed with what he did, but it was the presence of Wilf Wooler that got Glamorgan the county championship for the first ever time in 1948. I'm quite sure if Morris Turnbull had still been around, um, Morris would have done the same. But Wilf was his able lieutenant and was able to guide Glamorgan to their first ever county title. Well, Andrew, I'm so glad that you've mentioned Wilf Wooler because he is going to be a large part of tonight's podcast. A tremendously interesting chap to say the least as you said originally worked in the coal trade in south wales he moved to algiers as well didn't he midway through the 1930s came back in 1938 debuted for glamorgan took figures of five for 90 from his 29.4 overs and then one for 62 from 16 overs in the second and as you rightfully said as well just a real all-round sportsman wasn't he 18 caps for Wales in Rugby Union, represented Wales in squash, played for Cardiff, played bowls later on in his life, and obviously Captain Glamorgan. What can you tell me about Wilf Wooler the man and Wilf Wooler the captain? What was his leadership style like in that Glamorgan dressing room? Well, I think you have to look at Wilf as a POW, 
let's just before we do that let's look at the 1930s where Wilf growing up in Denbyshire in North Wales uh, a, a schoolboy Rydal School great founding um, someone who played for Cambridge University and had been very much uh, a happy-go-lucky amateur but let's look at his rugby where he had played for Cardiff and as you rightly say uh, for Wales and who better to beat the New Zealand All Blacks he had tasted victory in a wider sporting context he knew what was needed now during the Second World War Wilf had served with uh, various um, anti-aircraft uh, groups he was taken prisoner in the Far East spent three years um, in uh, horrendous conditions in Changi he also uh, was um, he also worked on the Burma Siam Railway, the Death Railway as we now know it, and he'd seen life at the fringe. He'd seen, he had seen everything. And Wilf, after the Second World War, was a much more, um, and this is this has come from his contemporaries. Wilf was a much more uh, robust, a much more solid, a much more combative person. And I use that word combative because Wilf saw a game of cricket as a battle between wills. Now let's put that into context because whilst he was in Changi, he was the chess champion for Changi and various other things whilst um, a POW. So Wilf brought an amazing, if not unique, set of captaincy credentials when he was appointed in 1947. The players who he was in charge of knew him. They knew his foibles, etc. But it was the toughness that he brought to the role. Now, in the 1930s, as I said, he was a happy-go-lucky amateur. But now, in the 1940s, he was almost like a professional. But let's not forget, he wasn't a professional. He was still an amateur. But he brought that toughness and maybe that was the crucial thing. Glamorgan under Morris Turnbull in the 1930s had enjoyed success. There was a lot of joie de vivre, etc. But Wilf Woolert in 47-48 brought a lot of toughness, uh, resilience. Wilf was standing at square leg, uh, encouraging um, his batters but also um, passing on a few words of support or advice or criticism or whatever you want to, to opposing batters. But Wilf very much saw cricket as a battle, a battle of minds, if nothing else. And 
those opposing batters who couldn't cope with Wilf snarling or whatever at short leg, well, I'm sorry. Um, you know, they they were out very cheaply. And I'm not I'm not saying that Wilf was the first sledger in modern cricket, but he was certainly the first person to uh, within Glamorgan to approach that mental side. And in the 1940s, let's not forget that it would have been three-day games. There would have been declarations possibly uh, where um, captains were trying to uh, conjure up something. And Wilf was there as a very fierce authoritarian figure. I want this, I want that. And you didn't mess with him. And that's what the Glamorgan players respected, was that here there was, you may not have agreed with him, but here was a clear leader. Uh, he was a hard man. I know from my own dealings with Wilf as a young schoolboy in Cardiff, and as a young adolescent, um, he knew me as someone who was a Glamorgan person, and he took me under his wing, and I saw the softer side. I also saw the harder side of Wilf on occasions, and there was no harm in that. And let's go back to the 1940s. In terms of winning games, you needed people uh to produce those performances and i think wilf was the right man at the right time at a when uh english cricket post at say edrich and compton 1940s with middlesex wilf was there and what was amazing was that it took the english press by complete surprise here, here were Glamorgan, the Cinderella team, the um, the makeup team, for want of a better word, in the championship. And Glamorgan won in 1948 and metaphorically put two fingers up to cricket establishment. And it was a statement. I know it took a lot of people... Um, time to um understand but it was a wonderful wonderful achievement and with wilf at the at the helm he didn't make any friends but his heart was in the right place he wanted glamorgan to win he was a welshman through and through he wanted glamorgan to win and by god they did they most certainly did, Andrew. And obviously, I'm not a Welshman myself, but even I'm feeling some pride and some passion towards Glamorgan County Cricket Club after that stirring speech. Goodness me. Thank you. It, it, it must just make Glamorgan fans incredibly proud, really, to know about this side. And as you mentioned, almost the Cinderella fairy tale element of this. This is why I find this particular story so interesting. It's the fact that this was a club which came from nothing in the 1920s. They had steadily improved in the 1930s. And then all of a sudden, 1948, under the leadership of a stern, vocal Welshman, this side won the ultimate crown in county cricket. It's a fantastic story 
And honestly, there's a lot that we haven't covered so far, but trust me, listeners, this really was one of the most interesting stories in the history of the county championship. And if we look at the season itself now, Andrew, if we go through some of the early results, for example, I think this is a nice place to pick up the conversation about some of the other key protagonists, aside from Wilf and his captaincy. We go all the way back to the start of the season on the 8th of May, and Glamorgan beat Essex by five wickets in Cardiff. They chased 311 runs in 108 overs. Second game, innings and 48-run victory over Worcester at New Road on the 15th of May, with Watkins scoring 101. And the third game against Lancashire, this is where I want to pick up the conversation about one particular player who we've already mentioned. Now, in this particular game, a man by the name of Emrys Davis scored 105 in the second innings. So, Andrew, what can you tell me about Emrys Davis as a player, as a person? Just how big of a role did he play in this championship victory? Well, Emrys's nickname was The Rock. And I think that says it all. Um, he was seen a professional. Um, he was a player. He'd first appeared for Glamorgan in, the night, in 1924 uh, as an all-rounder. Um, he'd struggled. Morris Turnbull saw something about him. Uh, Emrys in the early 1930s had been promoted as an opening batter with Arnold Dyson. And simply, Emrys, as I said, was the rock. Emrys would go out and get so many runs and give a foundation to uh, Glamorgan's batting. Let's not forget, though, that in 1948, Glamorgan had also, and this was the result of Wilf Wooler, they'd also made a useful acquisition because Len Munzer from Middlesex had been signed. Now, Len had mixed up leg breaks and off breaks. Uh, he was looking for an opportunity. And um, Wilf had persuaded Len to come to Glamorgan. But also, at the same time, in that summer of 1948, Gilbert Parkhouse was available. Now, Gilbert was a supremely gifted young sportsman. He'd been to Wycliffe College near Stonehouse. He'd played rugby, hockey, cricket at a high level as a youngster. And now he was available in 1948. He'd played in some of Glamorgan's wartime friendlies. He'd mixed his military duties. But here is someone who scores over a 1,000 runs in his debut season and then goes on in the 1950s to play for England. So um, the key thing, Emrys was a pre-1939 um, stalwart and there were others like Alan Watkins who was a uh, professional footballer with Plymouth Argyle and also Cardiff City and he had switched allegiance to cricket in 1946 as well. But Glamorgan had that base of solid professionals in the 1940s. 
And on top of that, you throw in the acquisition of Len Munzer, you throw the you throw the availability of Gilbert Parkhouse, and on top of that, almost like a recipe, you add the uh, captaincy of Wolf Waller, and you turn um, and see what happens. And it was a season that Glamorgan fans will never forget. And rightfully so. As we'll discuss later on in tonight's podcast, this was massive in terms of the wider context of county cricket as well, with Glamorgan becoming just the third county outside of the so-called Big Six to lift the county championship in this season after Warwickshire in 1911 and Derbyshire in 1936. So this really was groundbreaking stuff at the time. And for Glamorgan, as you said rightfully, Andrew, massive. This is going to live on for the rest of time. It's the first county championship in the Welsh club's history. Now, it's interesting you mention the likes of Gilbert Parkhouse. He was 22 at the time, if I'm not mistaken. He was from Swansea, appeared in seven test matches for England, and also played rugby in Swansea itself. And this brings me nicely onto a very unique question, I think, and one which would relate to maybe a couple of teams when it comes to different sports. But I think this question in particular relates quite wonderfully to Glamorgan. And it's about rugby. Because we've mentioned beforehand, a number of these guys played rugby. Rugby, of course, very physically demanding, very hard, gritty, hard-fought sports. And it does produce some toughness, doesn't it, in you? And for those who know the, the history of Wales, the, the national sports of the country is rugby. It generates so much passion, so much energy, so much fire for that Welsh culture. You can't really underestimate the importance of rugby in Wales. It's part and parcel of the Welsh DNA. So, Andrew, this was an interesting question I had. But looking at the fact that a number of these guys played rugby all across various parts of Wales, do you think that rugby upbringing, which is very much almost centred around Wales itself, had an impact on this Glamorgan side? Do you think that mental and physical toughness brought about by playing hard-fought rugby games almost turned this side into a more tougher opposition. What are your thoughts on rugby's influence on the side of 1948? Well, I think it did. Let's not forget that it wasn't for everyone. And there were half a dozen individuals within the squad who were playing rugby. And for those half a dozen, absolutely. Let's not forget that rugby would have presented a desire to win. It would have also uh, engendered this esprit de corps, and it would have also engendered this um, team ethic that, okay, we may not have won today, but we, you know, we can we can build on what we've learned, and we can we can win tomorrow. But let's look at one person in particular within that half a dozen I mentioned, Willie Jones. Now, Willie Jones, uh, born in Carmarthen, made his debut in the 1930s. What we, what I haven't said, which was one of the legacies of Morris Turnbull, was that Glamorgan had entered the Minor County Championship in the 1930s with a second eleven. So to provide... Um, 
a training ground for the young players to learn their trade. And Willie was one of those who flourished in the Minor County Championship, made his first class debut before the Second World War. But then, during the Second World War, he also was a very, very talented rugby player as a fly half and fullback. And he would, well, he actually won a place in a Wales rugby team in 1940, a wartime international. And there's no doubt that had the war not happened, that Willie would have won honours with uh, Wales as a rugby player. Now, that, um, uh, that as I mentioned the Esprit de Corps, came across in 1948 when there was dressing room banter between Wilf and others and Willie. Now, Willie was... A, I wouldn't say he was the most confident of individuals, um, quite shy and reserved. But if you put a rugby ball in his hand, his eyes lit up. And I know that after play on several occasions in 1948, Wilf and others went out with a rugby ball to see who could kick the furthest. Now, for Wilf, that was great because that was nurturing that sport that winning, uh, that sporting um, uh, strand within the psyche. But it was also boosting Willie's place. Now, let's not forget that during the 1948 season, Willie Jones, in the space of a few weeks, scored back-to-back -back double hundreds for Glamorgan. And against Essex at Brentwood, he and Emrys Davis shared a record partnership of 313. There were stories as well that Emrys and Willie confused the Essex fielders by calling to each other in Welsh. Um, it, so Willie's rugby career may have been halted by the Second World War, but by Wilf nurturing it, that competitive instinct that spilled over into the, as I say, into the Glamorgan batting. And for Willie then to score back-to-back -back double hundreds, well, the rest is history. <laughs> it most certainly is. And obviously, Welsh rugby's loss was definitely Glamorgan's gain in that season. 1,656 runs at 40.39 in first-class cricket across 1948. Outstanding summer from Willie Jones. And in terms of another player that I just wanted to mention, before we look at the statistics and the results, I suppose, from that season, it's a man by the name of Stan Trick. Now, Stan Trick is a very interesting character in this particular side. And I know that Lucy, who used to host the podcast with me, would not forgive me if I didn't mention the fact that he used to play for Brighton Ferry Steel. In, in South Wales, so big up to BFSCC for producing Stan Trick along with Neath Cricket Club. But on the 22nd of May, Glamorgan played Somerset in Swansea. They ended up winning the game by 137 runs. And Stan Trick took not one, but two sixfers in this game, ending with career-best figures 
of 12 for 106 from 49.4 overs. Andrew, what can you tell me about Stan Trick? Because he wasn't available for the vast majority of the season due to his family business. But when he was available, he was rather good, wasn't he? Yeah, I would say Stan Trick is the unsung hero of 1948, without any question of doubt. He'd been brought up with Britain Ferry uh, in the 1930s. He was actually quite a useful footballer. He actually won honours with Wales and uh, an outstanding sportsman. But his family ran a garage business, a motor vehicle business in Neath. And that's where Stan, um, his family wanted him to spend time. And that's what duly happened. I think overtures were made perhaps by football teams. Uh, Glamorgan may have come calling, but the loyalty of Stan to his family uh, was paramount. The Trick family, actually, if you were to go back um, before the First World War, they were hugely instrumental in establishing Neath Cricket Club as uh, an entity and also helping with Glamorgan in their minor county days. So you're quite right. The Tricks were hugely important and... I have heard it said that Wilf Wooler shed a little bit more sand on the wicket at Swansea, knowing that Stan Trick was available. But let's put that to one side. Um, Stan Trick was a huge, was a fine, fine sportsman, and he was probably, as I say, the forgotten hero of 1948, and a man who, if he had been available on a full-time basis, he would have won so many England caps. Um, someone who, through his flight and guile, would have won honours. To be honest, Andrew, I can't really disagree with that. Just looking at his first-class record, it's quite staggering. So in 1948, played in seven matches, took 36 wickets, <laughs> 22 of which I think came in Swansea, funnily enough, and across his 19 career first-class games, 56 wickets at an average of 19.41. So if you're a Glamorgan fan, Stan Trick, definitely someone to be aware of in terms of the club's history. And even though it wasn't necessarily a major role in comparison to other players across that season, goodness me, when he played, <laughs> he was quite a good spin bowler, was Mr Trick. And in terms of someone else, actually, Andrew, almost in that similar vein, of a bona fide wicket taker, someone we haven't mentioned so far, is is Norman Heaver, the 23-year-old seamer from Marylebone in London. Now he's got a very interesting story because he won back-to-back -back county championship titles with separate counties. He was part of Middlesex's 1947 winning side, and then in 1948 moved to Glamorgan. Rest is history: 84 wickets at 17 runs apiece over the course of that season. Now the reason I wanted to bring him up is because of his role in the side. He was very much the strike bowler, wasn't he? He was the X-factor option for Wilf Wooler. Again, I suppose in the same vein as the questions about Emrys Davis, Gilbert Parkhouse and Stan Trick, how pivotal of a role did Norman Heaver play in that championship victory? Hugely. 
um, Norman Heaver or Pete Heaver, as he was known, um, he brought something extra because he was the skiddy pace uh, with the new ball. He gave something extra that the others didn't have. Now, Alan Watkins, who we haven't talked about, left arm over. Wilf, right arm over. Uh, there was also um, Hugh Griffiths, Cambridge University, later Lord Griffiths, who was fast right arm over. But Norman Heaver brought that skiddiness and that ability as a strike bowler. So Wilf could use him in short spells uh, to hopefully take wickets. Now, the detractors of Glamorgan said, oh, well, it's it's Glamorgan. It's not Glamorgan who are winning. It's, it's Middlesex second 11. But I would actually like, I, I, I think it was more than that because Pete Heaver playing for Glamorgan he had a greater opportunity that he'd had ever before. And he formed an outstanding new ball partnership with Will, with Wilf Waller. They made early inroads. Alan Watkins then with his left arm uh, followed up. And then it was Johnny Clay. And when uh, Emrys Davis, or as we said earlier, uh, Stan Trick, um, they were... They were almost in um, uh, the grips of a superb bowling attack. But Pete Heaver gave Glamorgan something they hadn't had. Before the Second World War, Jack Merce had had a wonderful, wonderful career. 1,400 uh, first-class wickets. Austin Matthews had joined. Uh, he'd played for Glamorgan. Um after a career with Northamptonshire, he played for England. But Pete Heaver was something different. Skiddy, nasty, in-your-face bowler. And uh, you're quite right. He was the X factor that Glamorgan had in 1948. He most certainly was. And again, it's just interesting to learn about these different stories. After cricket, for example... He did retire in 1954, and then he went on to become Northamptonshire's groundsman. I thought that was quite an interesting little tidbit of information yeah. about Heaver's life. So, such an interesting team. And Johnny Clay, we shall discuss a little bit oh. later on, because obviously he had a large role to play in the latter stages of the season, in particular in a certain game down in Bournemouth. But just to go back to the season, again, just going through some of the results... Following that 137-run victory over Somerset in Swansea, Glamorgan actually suffered their first loss of the season by 301 runs to Derbyshire. Then they beat Kent's by a massive innings and 63-run margin. Then they followed up with three more victories on back-to-back-to-back occasions against Hampshire by 70 runs, Kent by 278 runs. And then there's the big one, isn't there, Andrew? The game down in Brentwood against Essex, which you did allude to with that record partnership. But an innings and 190-run victory. How on earth, I suppose, first and foremost, did Glamorgan pull that off? Because that is a monumental margin. It really is. And secondly, in hindsight, in retrospect, 
Do you think that was almost the catalyst of Glamorgan winning the county championship? Such a dominant victory like that must have put the rest of the county circuit on on watch at that point. I think you're right. I know that after the def- you mentioned a few minutes ago about the defeat at Derbyshire, and I know from talking with uh, various former Glamorgan players, Hayden Davis, the Glamorgan wicketkeeper, had actually pulled Wolf to one side uh, after play. Not the easiest of things to do, but Hayden had pulled Wolf to one side and said, look, I think we've got the makings of a championship-winning team. And Wilf, of course, said, what do you mean? And Hayden, who, don't forget, played for Glamorgan since the 1930s, uh, since 1937 as wicketkeeper, said, look, if we do X, Y, Z. And they had a series of chats, and that game, you're quite rightly, against Brentwood, that laid down a marker that here were batters who could occupy the crease, get runs, and most importantly, get runs quickly. And there were bowlers who were wicket-taking bowlers. But I think the thing that we haven't mentioned was the fielding. And the fielding of the Glamorgan team in 1948 was the bit that made them so different, so much better than any other county team. They had, uh, I'm just going to mention two people, Jimmy Eagleston, who had been a a fringe player at Middlesex. He'd also moved to Glamorgan. But there was a man called Jim Police who had made his debut for Glamorgan a couple of years before. A wonderful fielder in the covers, short leg, a live wire in the field. And Jim Police, let's not forget, had actually on D Day in uh, 1944, Jim had been there in the forefront of the Allied landings in Normandy. Uh, he'd crawled through, did what he had to on the beaches in Normandy. He he had a wonderful story to tell um, about his wartime experiences. And here was someone who'd literally faced death uh, for several hours, did what he needed to. So to put that in 1944 into context, to come back in 1947 when he won his place in the Glamorgan team, and then in 1948, it was a piece of cake. But Jim was a wonderful fielder, but Wilf Wooler took great pride about the leg trap that Glamorgan had developed. So I talk about um, Jim Pleas as a cover fielder and a gully on the offside. On the leg side, you had Wilf standing at forward short leg, snarling, giving advice. I think the nicest way would be giving advice to the opposition batters. You had Arnold Dyson. You had Alan Watkins fielding at backward square. Phil Clift as well in that 
uh, close fielding trap. And any edge, any half chance that was given was snaffled up. And that, I think, to be honest, made the difference between the Glamorgan team before and the Glamorgan team of 1948. Catches were taken. They had people in the right places. Mentally, pressures were being put on opposition batters. And the rest is history, as I say. It definitely is. And you know what's just so interesting, listening back to that, understanding the, the role that that leg trap theory actually played in Glamorgan's title success, and also that electric fielding mindset, because, you know, this is the fourth episode of the podcast now, and going through some of these teams beforehand, all the way back in 1911, Frank Foster was a pioneer of leg theory. Leg theory in the 1920s and 1930s became bodyline, infamous for the 1932-33 Ashes, but Arthur Carr utilised that for Nottinghamshire when they won in 1929. You skip forward to 1948, and although it isn't bodyline per se, that leg trap theory, getting into the psyche of the opposition, and pivotally, as you said, Andrew, taking older catches. It's one of the oldest statements in the critting book, isn't it? But catches win matches. And in the county championship, it really is a case of the best fielding sides tend to win the trophies. It really is a great barometer of where a side is at in terms of confidence, skill level, and talent. So I think a great takeaway, actually, from this, not just episode, but series, take a lot of pride in your fielding if you are in the county championship. Yeah, I know that Wilf, um, he did tell me... Um, when I wrote his biography back in the 1990s, Wilf did say that he spe he had spent a lot of time as a POW uh, during the during 43, 44, and 45. He'd analysed, I guess it was what was keeping him going in those horrendous times, and he'd analysed county cricket. And he realised that not many teams attacked the leg stump. And if you had, let's say, your off-cutters, your off-spin bowlers, and obviously with turning wickets at Cardiff and Swansea, mainly Swansea, um, where the ball was coming in towards your right-hand batter, to have a ring of close catches uh, was important. And... Well, um, Glamorgan may have not have been the best batting team. They may have not been the best bowling team in 1948. But by God, they were the best fielding team. They most certainly were. And again, the stats, the records, the archives speak for themselves, don't they? In that capacity, an outstanding fielding unit. And ultimately, yeah, one of the, the key factors behind this success, an unlikely success on paper, in 1948, but what proved to be a legendary success in the history of Glamorgan County Cricket Club. And aside from those results, then we've mentioned the game at Brentwood. That was followed by a draw against Nottinghamshire and Trent Bridge. Then a 221-run victory over the same opposition in Swansea, where Wooler scored 80 in the first innings. That was a nice little knock, that, from the, from the Welsh captain. That was then followed by a two-wicket loss to Middlesex in Cardiff, a draw against Lancashire in Newport, and then a six-wicket victory against Sussex in Swansea. 
in which Munster took match figures of 15 for 201 from 90.5 overs. So again, Munster really coming into his own as the season progressed. Now, one of the later games in this season, following another couple of draws, then two back-to-back losses against my county of Warwickshire, Edgbaston, and a 21-run loss to Leicester in Cardiff, we have the game against Gloucestershire at Ebba Vale. Now, Andrew, in terms of the season itself, it was a draw. Not necessarily a pivotal encounter this, and not one which ultimately decided the title, but there's an interesting story from this game, isn't there, involving the sheep and the mountain mist, shall we say. Yeah, um, I don't know how many people on this podcast would know Evervale, but at um, over 900 metres, it is one of the most upland uh, grounds uh, on the county circuit. And I believe what it actually, and and let's not forget, we're in the middle, um, or uh, Evervale Cricket Club, has a mix of both the industrial and also the rural. So there were um, blast furnaces slightly to the south, um, but the ground, the welfare ground, as it uh, subsequently has been known, um, uh, in a sort of bowl, let's not forget, by the river Ebui. And I gather that um, during that game, um, there was a delay and a flock of sheep came down and the flock of sheep had to be shoon away. Um, They had left a few little um, signatures on the outfield. Um, But yeah, an amazing occurrence where potentially sheep stopped play and that's exactly why i brought it up i don't think i've ever seen that in the history of cricket before but again strange things happen don't they in county cricket and anything can happen at an outground as was the case in that game in 1948 and andrew i suppose we have to go now to probably the sweetest game from the entire season and that is of course the innings and 115 run victory over Hampshire County Cricket Club down in Bournemouth. This was the game where Glamorgan County Cricket Club, who had made their first-class debut just 27 years prior, were crowned officially as the champions of England and Wales. So what can you tell me about this game? What actually happened? What events played out over the course of those legendary days? And what were the celebrations like afterwards? I imagine they must have been quite, quite vociferous, shall we say. They were, but let's actually go back a couple of weeks before that because Glamorgan had played Surrey at Cardiff Arms Park. Now, at the time, Glamorgan, as you quite rightly say, were riding high in the table, but Alan Watkins, their talented all-rounder, had been called up by England. So, Wilf Woollett, the Glamorgan captain needed to augment the team. Now, who better to come in than Johnny Clay, a a man who'd taken so, so many wickets with his off-spin in the 1930s, had played for England, 
uh, in the summer of 1937 alone had taken a club record 176 wickets during the season. And still in 1948, he was still a force to be reckoned with. Surrey were beaten by an innings at Cardiff. Johnny Clay scything through the uh, Surrey batters in both innings. So Glamorgan, quite rightly, as you said, went down to Hampshire, cock-a-hoop. They knew they had a match-winning spin bowler. Yes, they're, they're all-rounder. Alan Watkins um, had been caught up by England. They didn't have him. But they had players at the top of the game. And they also had something else. Uh, in Wales, we call it Hoyle which is um, Welsh spirit, uh, Welsh togetherness. And that's what they had. They went down to Bournemouth. The first day was actually, there wasn't much play on that first day against Hampshire. They knew one more win would clinch the title. There wasn't much play. After 20 minutes or so, play was called off. Uh, there were lots of lots of uh, Glamorgan supporters who'd gone down to the, to the south coast, who I guess went into the churches and the chapels and other places on the south Wales coast to, play, to pray for a sunny day on the Monday. Don't forget this, the first day had been on the Saturday, the Sunday was a day off, and then it was Monday, Tuesday. Well, the Monday dawned clear and bright. And Emrys Davis, Phil Clifton, and others were able to post a decent score. And then it was over to the Glamorgan bowlers. And uh, Johnny Clay did the business. Uh, he scythed through the Hampshire bowling like a hot knife through butter. Now, in the second innings, there were there was a bit of resistance, but it got to a stage just around about three o'clock on the final day, where Charlie Knott, the final Hampshire batter, came out to the middle to face Johnny Clay. Now, as I was going to say as luck would have it, but I'm not sure luck is the right word. But Di Davis, who had been one of Glamorgan's stalwarts during the pre Oh, sorry, during the interwar era, Di Davis was one of the umpires. Now, the fact that he wore a red tie with a, with a Welsh um, dragon on it and he wore under his white coat a Glamorgan sweater, let's, not let's, let's forget that. But the story goes that Johnny Clay bowled one of his wonderful, uh, well-flighted balls. It deceived Charlie not in the flight, wrapped him on the pads, absolutely slap bang in front of middle and leg. Johnny Clay turns round, knowing full well that this is the wicket is going to get Glamorgan the championship. And Di Davis is there. He pauses for a second and he then says, to Johnny and the rest of the Glamorgan fielders. That's out. 
and we've won the championship. Who needs neutral umpires, for God's sake? <laughs> that story is exactly why I wanted to mention that game, because I read that in an article that Paul Edwards did for the Cricketer, I think, back in 2020, I think it was. I think it was down. It was part of his lockdown series. And I just found that a very interesting quote. Obviously, very unbiased was Di Davis in that particular moment, saying, we've won the championship. But when you think of the story of Glamorgan, it wasn't just the fact that they hadn't been first class for a long time, but it was that almost rags to riches story, wasn't it? This was a club which at times had struggled immensely financially during that interwar period and had just about scraped an existence in county cricket. And in 1948, against all of the odds, they were now the champions of the entire country. And to be honest, in your opinion, Andrew, could there have been a better player to take that final wicket than Johnny Clay, the man who went on to become Glamorgan's third all-time leading first-class wicket-taker with 1,292 wickets? In a word, no. Partly because he'd been around in the early 1920s when Glamorgan began. Um, he was a tearaway fast bowler initially. He went to Winchester College. He struck, He then had, like so many fast bowlers, he had injuries. He then actually um, mixed in the in the mid nineteen twenties. He mixed his off breaks with leg breaks before deciding to be uh, an off spinner. And walking around, I, I, I've heard so many people tell me subsequently that he that they would see him walking around. His his parents owned. Um, a uh, shipbuilding, uh, so, sorry, a ship uh, leasing business in Cardiff Docks. And he was walking around with a rubber ball, flexing it so that his fingers were supple. But I think the most important thing is that Johnny, in the winter of 32 33, together with Morris Turnbull, led a fundraising campaign. And had it not been for what they did during that winter, going off, raising money in whatever way, uh, going to dances, whist drives, you name it, Glamorgan would have struggled. And so for Johnny Clay to have been there at the start in the early 1920s, to have played a key role in keeping Glamorgan afloat in the 1930s, you couldn't have written a better script uh, for Johnny to be there to take the final wicket against Hampshire. Absolutely, Andrew. I mean, when you just look at the, the fairy tale aspect of this victory in 1948, I think that's just the, the cherry on top of the proverbial cake, isn't it? I suppose Johnny Clay, the man who'd helped to keep the club afloat during the 1930s, being the man at the end to take that winning wicket you could not write a better script than that, in my personal opinion. And I suppose, actually, that brings me nicely onto one of our closing questions for today's podcast, Andrew. It's been a fascinating discussion. It really has. But we've spoken there about the season and the fact that Glamorgan ultimately ended up winning by, by four points. They lost their last game. That's something we neglected to mention, but they did lose their last game to, to Leicestershire by an innings and 38 runs. But they did win the championship, which is the important thing by a margin of four points, having 172 
compared to stories 168. But I just think we, we have to wrap up today's episode by discussing the legacy of that victory, because at the time, this was massive, wasn't it? I, I mentioned it earlier on in the podcast. This was the third time in the history of the county championship that a side outside of the big six, for those who don't know who the big six were, that was Yorkshire, Lancashire, Surrey, Middlesex. Then, of course, you had Nottinghamshire here in the Midlands, and you had Kent down in the southeast. They were the big six. In 1911, Warwickshire became the first team outside of that to lift the championship. Then in 1936, Derbyshire joined them, becoming the second team outside of the established Big Six. And then in 1948, it was Glamorgan's turn. So this was groundbreaking in terms of the the magnitude of this particular success. I suppose I have to ask, on both a, a local scale and a larger scale, what legacy did Wilf Wooler and the team of 1948 leave not only on Glamorgan County Cricket Club, but also on Welsh cricket in general, just how big was this victory in the years that followed? Absolutely massive. I think the one thing it would be very remiss of me to say, and again, as I said earlier, don't forget Glamorgan at the time were renting grounds. Glamorgan didn't own any of their grounds didn't own any premises apart from an office block in the center uh sorry a when i said an office block a small suite of offices in the center of cardiff but the one thing that the success in 1948 did was to improve the facilities not just for spectators but also for young players in 1951 an indoor school was opened in neath neath between uh, uh well in, in in the western end of uh, glamorgan this side of swansea as it were but there at the knoll an indoor school was created and it was in that indoor school that the likes of alan jones who went to went on to score 36,000 first-class runs for Glamorgan, never to play for England, but we'll leave that to one side. It was in those facilities, together with Jeff Jones, someone who was a fast left-arm bowler for Glamorgan and England in the 1960s, they learnt their trade. So in terms of sheer facilities, the interest that was there with, uh, within the business community to help Glamorgan to go forward, it was absolute paramount. You, uh, without 1948, I don't know where Glamorgan would have gone. But if we just look at the legacy in terms of personnel, as opposed to uh, facilities, in the summer of 1948, there was a young man who was on the MCC ground staff. His name was Don Shepherd. Then he was a fast bowler. He'd been uh, from the Gower in Sw the west of Swansea. He Don had done his, uh, his national service in Worcestershire, had been recommended to Glamorgan, and Don Shepherd in 1948, actually one of his greatest memories 
Don told me was in the 1948 during the England-Australia test at Lords was actually opening the door of the Australian uh, changing room to let Don Bradman out to walk down into the long room and out into the middle at Lords. But Don was there learning his trade at Lords in 1948. Don subsequently made his debut for Glamorgan in 1950. 2,174 wickets later, he's the man who's got more wickets than anyone else who's never played Test cricket. But had it not been for Glamorgan's success in 1948, I doubt if Don would have had the encouragement and all the others. Moving, I mentioned Alan. Uh, I mentioned Alan Jones a few minutes ago, but also Tony Lewis in the mid 1950s. Peter Walker as well, who'd come over, uh, a young uh, of of Welsh parents, although born in Bristol, raised in South Africa, had come across. Peter Walker came to South Wales in the 1950s. But there was the next generation, and that's the crucial thing. You have a championship success, but it's building on that and taking it forward. And luckily, there were individuals who came over, like Peter and others, like Alan and Don, as I mentioned, and they learnt their trade. And then we have the 1960s, which arguably would be the most successful in Glamorgan's history. Let's look at it uh, purely in terms of results. 1964, Glamorgan beat Australia for the first ever time. Not a full-strength Glamorgan team. Ozzy Wheatley was captain. Several players were rested, but Glamorgan beat Australia. 1968, against a full-strength uh, Glamorgan team, Australia are beaten again. Don Shepherd is the captain. So in back-to-back -back Australian tours, Glamorgan have won at Swansea. 1969, Glamorgan win the championship. And in 1970, they're third in the table as well. So what you have to look at is that legacy from 1948 dribbling through the 50s and into the 60s and nurturing a strong, a powerful team, very much with the Wooler influence that never, because Wilf is a captain, was very much never say die we will fight to the end that's what he'd experienced as a prisoner of war in changi and on the uh, burma siam railway he was going to give his all until the end and it was those influences that rubbed off now wilf wasn't everyone's cup of tea i know because he would be there at short leg, sharing a few words of advice, if that's the polite way of saying it, to opposition batters. Uh, Wilf did rub people up the wrong way, but Wilf's broader legacy was a combative Glamorgan team, and one, as I say, 
in the 1960s that beat Australia on consecutive tours. No other county can claim that. And then in 1969, we get a second championship win. And in 1969, Prince Charles was invested as Prince of Wales. And um, it was almost then, 21 years later, after 19, after 1948. But in 1969, we actually saw the true story of that first success. Wilf was secretary. The next generation had been groomed. Alan Jones, Peter Walker, Don Shepherd were key people in that team. So 1948 was not just a one-off. It wasn't just one of those things. It happened then. Um, there were further things that happened. And um, it's been wonderful to hear those stories from those players. But if I just go back to 1948, just to finish, there was one man in that 1948 team who um, had a story to tell. Jim Police, who I mentioned earlier, had been in 1944. He'd been a young soldier. He'd gone across on D-Day itself to help Lane to help lay cables on Omaha Beach, I think it was. He survived. Thousands didn't. He came back. And I know in 1948, he was there under Wolf Wooler. And I know talking with Jim, uh, he said, well, I was there with Wolf snarling, and we won the championship. What more could I want? And I, th I think that sums it up it most certainly does andrew and i think that is a lovely place to wrap up what's been a fascinating insight not just into the early history of glamorgan but also the legacy of that side and what an incredible legacy that side has left behind a legacy which we enjoy in the modern era as well seeing that glamorgan county cricket club very much still a part and parcel of county cricket all the way up until the modern day so Honestly, Andrew, for myself, a massive, massive thank you for taking the time to come on today. I've learned so much about that side and the, the wider cricketing culture of Wales as well. It really is fascinating. And you do have a podcast yourself with the CC4 Museum. So do you have anything to plug or promote in that regard in terms of the podcast, in terms of where we can find you on social media and also some of the work you've done? I know that you've written quite a few books on the likes of Wooler. You've written a book about this. It's the Daffodil Blooms, isn't it, with Brian Halford, who's our journalist. So anything to plug or promote before we say our, our final goodbyes? Well, uh, if you Google CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket, you will see that I've got regular podcasts there and uh, also um, online talks with former players. So, yeah, uh, cricketmuseum.wales, I think, is where you'll find it. And... Uh, it's great to be able to spend the winter months talking to people about um, former players, about their memories, and to keep everything going in the winter months, to nurture those memories, keep them warm. Because basically, as a club, in order to go forward, you need to know where you've been. And that's where the heritage is. So thank you. It's been a 
honor it's been a privilege tonight to uh, speak to you and um to share some memories from that wonderful wonderful summer of 1948 well andrew honestly the pleasure is all mine and for you as the listeners out there please feel free to go and check out andrew and the the cc4 museum of welsh cricket the only accredited cricketing museum here in the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland so if you want to go and check them out please feel free to do so by using the links in the description below and i'll also leave the links to the podcast as well I can vouch for them. I've listened to a few of them. The The discussion with Michael Hogan in particular was quite a highlight. So again, if you want to go and listen to those guys, please feel free to do so in your own time. But that is it from us two here at the Counter Cricket Podcast for tonight's episode. To each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there, thank you very much for tuning in. And as always, guys, we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>